Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 28th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present the part 22 of our series, The Protocols of Satan. And we have subtitled this rather provocatively, The Midgard Serpent and the Enslavement of Christendom. It, it should really be the Jews and the Enslavement of Christendom. However, I'm going to take a several paragraph digression that, that is really directly related to scripture and not exactly to the protocols, but if you're an identity Christian, well, of course it's related to the protocols, right? But I have a few things to get off my chest that I've been wanting to talk about, and I chose this occasion to make such a digression. It's been just over a month since our last presentation of the Protocols of Satan, which was part 21 of this series, where we took a long digression to discuss the facts behind the supposed connections between the philosophy of Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists, and that of Friedrich Nietzsche. The truth is that no such connection ever existed. We tried to make the point that it is the Jews themselves who insist that Hitler drew his political philosophy from Nietzsche, when in reality Hitler's inspiration were the Christian scriptures. One example we cited of Jewish perfidy in this area were the several denizens of the Frankfurt School. Max Horkheimer was clearly influenced by Nietzsche. We also cited an academic paper by a student of Harold Marcuse, grandson of Frankfurt School denizen Herbert Marcuse, which insisted upon making the connection of Nietzsche to Hitler. Then we cited an abstract from another academic article published by the British Journal of Psychiatry, which showed that Sigmund Freud was also heavily influenced by Nietzsche. These are all absolutely contrary to Adolf Hitler and National Socialism. We had wondered how people who are otherwise very aware of Jewish treachery have been persuaded to believe that Adolf Hitler could have gotten his ideas for nation and race from a philo-Semitic nihilist like Nietzsche. So after the last, after the last program, Clifton Emmerheiser called to our attention one of those tell-all Jews with whom many otherwise rational Christians have been enamored. Men fall for this all the time, in the likes of a Nathaniel Kapner, a Henry Macau, a Bobby Fischer, a Harold Rosenthal, or some other Jew who says things that the supposedly awakened Goyim like to hear. But they are all snakes in the grass who will perpetuate the greatest lies while feeding little pieces of an incomplete puzzle to naive fools. If we are ever going to come to the real truth, 
we must end our fascination with devils. This time, or in this instance, it is Myron Fagan, by whom we were probably all at one time enamored with, but whom was also a Jew. Fagan was a writer, director, and producer of both Broadway plays and Hollywood movies. He allegedly became a truth-teller during the Second World War after some of the Roosevelt administration's darkest treachery was said to have been revealed to him. So after the war, Fagan began speaking on the Illuminati, the Protocols of Zeon, the Council on Foreign Relations, and other related topics, even going so far as to speak about the Synagogue of Satan and certain corrupt Jews. But to Fagin, there were also legitimate Jews that were not corrupt. And the Old Testament was still identified as a Jewish book. It is behind the perpetuation of these lies where we find the greatest treachery. Along with his bits of truth-telling, Fagan then spread the lies that Hitler was financed by the quote-unquote corrupt Kennedy, along with the Rothschilds, Warburgs, and other international bankers. Of course, Fagan once, once worked for a film company owned by Joseph Kennedy, so his expertise is easily presumed. In his lecture titled The Illuminati and the Council on Foreign Relations, Fagan also said that this Nietzscheanism was later developed into fascism and then into Nazism and was used to foment World War I and World War II. So there are at least as many lies in the words of Myron Fagan than there is truth, even though he said a lot of things that Christian patriots loved to hear. The first treachery of Byron Fagan is that he perpetuated the lies concerning the Bible and the identity of the Jews. Secondly, he obscured the real economic success of National Socialist Germany by concealing the fact that the nation flourished under an economic system which was free of Jewish usury. Hitler's Germany was financed by Germany itself because they removed the Jewish usurer from the equation. Furthermore, Hitler's social and political ideas came from the Christian scriptures, as well as his beliefs about the Jews themselves, and are as far removed from Nietzsche or Fagan as possible. The last thing that the Jews would want... is the Goyim discovering the real truth behind all of these things. And therefore, we are presented with Myron Fagan. Early Christian patriots were enamored with Fagan and distributed his speeches widely. I myself, sometime in 1997, was given a copy of his speeches and not knowing enough at the time had been fascinated by them. But before I ever wrote a word about the issues they address, I set out to study the fuller truths of the matters. I have only God to thank for that. Those Christians who fell into Fagan's trap went on to influence a whole generation of Christian and white nationalists who did not investigate the truth of the matters. So we have the situation we are in today, where so many Christian and white nationalists are divided on these issues.
This is the division which the Jews love to cause, so as to forever confuse their enemies and dissolve their effectiveness. As we have said many times in the past, where a Jew moves his lips, he is lying, and no tidbits of truth are worth the flood of lies which emanate from their filthy mouths. Presenting protocol number two here in our last presentation, we learn from Carl Radel, if I say his name correctly, that the words where it says, note the successes of Darwin, Marxism, and Nietzscheism, engineered by us, were actually an interpolation inserted by Sergei Nihilus for his 1905 edition of the Protocols and World Revolution. In his in Karl Radl's assertion concerning this, he had cited the original Russian publication of the Protocols published by Pavlov Khrushchevan in a series of installments in a periodical called Zvamia in Z-N-A-M-I-A in 1903. In this regard, we are reliant on Mr. Radl since we have no original Russian copy of our own, and couldn't read it if we did. However, in the end, Nihilus was not wrong to make the note that he did. Even if Darwin and Nietzsche were not directly products of the Jews, Darwinism and Nietzscheism, as well as Marxism, have all been promoted and used by the Jews in order to lead Christians astray, and they have been very effective to this very day. The passage may be a commentary which does not belong in a text, but it is nonetheless accurate. As we said in conclusion, a truly Christian society would not perpetuate the mindless drivel of a Nietzsche, whose works were obscure in his own lifetime or Darwin, whose theories have never been proven, although they are accepted and persistently promoted by the Jewish-controlled society as if having been proven. As for Marx, he will be a topic of discussion in this presentation of Protocol Number 3, which the authors of the Protocols have subtitled Methods of Conquest. This is where we shall continue with our presentation of the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, employing the translation found in the book The Protocols and World Revolution, attributed to Boris Brassall and published in Boston in 1920. In the typical fashion, this third, this third of the Protocols also opens with a boastful declaration. And the author says, Today I can tell you that our goal is close at hand. Only a small distance remains. And the cycle of the symbolic serpent, the symbol of our people, will be complete. When this circle is completed, then all the European states will be enclosed in it as in strong claws. And I couldn't help but to make a digression here. The Midgard, or World Serpent, of Ragnarok. The Leviathan of Christian scriptures. The nations gathered by the devil against the camp of the saints.
This same battle has occupied the subconscious of Christian and now mainly European minds for thousands of years. In the Prose Edda, it is said that Odin, a word which is akin to the Hebrew word for Lord, took the children of Lachai, a word which is akin to Lucifer, which he had had by the giantess, Angerboda, or Angra, I'm sorry, Angerbotha. Certainly one of the giants known to the Hebrews as the Nephilim, or Rephaim. These children were the wolf Fenrir, Hela, or Hel, who came to preside over the netherworld, and Jormungandr. And he threw this last, Jormungandr, into the great ocean that encircles Midgard, where it grew large enough to surround the earth and grasp its own tail. Ragnarok, the final battle, would begin when the serpent released its tail. During Ragnarok, it is predicted that Fenrir, the giant wolf, (coughs) would even kill Odin. Any true student of antiquity, and especially of Christianity, should only see the story of Ragnarok, (coughs) Lokai, Jormungandr, and these other figures in the Eddas as elaborations on an oral understanding of the Christian scriptures. That is exactly what they are. The devil, as the word loci or loci, is derivative from the Latin pronunciation of Lucifer, Lockifer, or Lokifer, where the letter C was originally hard, and not the soft C of late medieval church Latin. The enemies of the Lord of the Bible, the Hebrew word for Lord is Adon, Adon, Odin, where in the New Testament, <clears throat> devil can refer to Jews collectively, were ostracized from the Christian society, the pit of Revelation chapter 20, and would come back in the end to surround the camp of the saints, the Christian people, where a great battle would be fought, ending with the destruction of the enemies of Christ in a lake of fire. But Christians know that in the end, their Lord will not die at the hands of a wolf. And in fact, in Christianity, the wolves actually represented those aliens who infiltrated the sheepfold in Judea and had crucified the Christ. In Scripture, in the book of Isaiah, it is written of the same enemy. In Isaiah chapter 27, that in that day, The Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea, Jormungandr. The devil, which as it says in Revelation chapter 20, is also that old serpent of Genesis chapter 3 is in the sea, just as Jormungandr was cast into the sea by Odin. But to Christians, the sea is actually an allegory for the flood of the world's other races which are cast from the mouth of the serpent to persecute the people of God, which is seen 
in Revelation chapter 12. The Jews are among those other races and have used those other races as their foremost weapon against Christians throughout this modern age. The Jews are the Midgard serpent, Jormungandr, or perhaps Jumungandr. And the analogy comes from the Christian scriptures, where Christ had said to them, Ye serpents, ye race of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That is only one of the many examples of such statements made in reference to the Jews. Likewise, the descendants of Cain and the Canaanites and Edomites, who later became the modern Jews, can be traced back to an association with the Rephaim and Nephilim, the giants of Genesis chapter 6. So every aspect of the myth of Loki, or Loki, the giantess, <coughs> the wolf, hell, and the serpent come straight from the Christian scriptures. It is not fantastic for learned Jews to come to the conclusion that they are collectively the serpent and leviathan of scripture. If the Jews did not believe in Jesus, they would not have spent so much time in their Talmud blaspheming him. The charade that they do not believe in Jesus is only a front which they put on for Christians so that they may keep the goyim deceived by the idea that Jesus only started a breakaway cult and that the Bible really belongs to them. Christ referred to them as serpents. The apostles and prophets of Yahweh referred to them as serpents and here they admit that they are indeed serpents. They also admit the desire to execute the very plan foretold by Christ in the Revelation in chapter 20 where it says that when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, which happened when the Jews gained their emancipation after the French Revolution, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth that giant sea of bastard peoples. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, the world's serpent, surrounding the people of God. And the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is the story the true story behind the Midgard serpent of Ragnarok, which both the neo-pagans and most modern so-called Christians are too ignorant to understand. And with that, we will present or continue with protocol number three. The modern constitutional scales will soon tip over, for we have set them inaccurately, thus ensuring an unsteady balance for the purpose of wearing out their holder. The goys thought it had been sufficiently strong, strongly made and hoped that the scales would regain their equilibrium, 
but the holder, the ruler, is screened from the people by his representatives, who fritter away their time, carried away by the un- their uncontrolled and irresponsible authority. Their power, moreover, has been built up on terrorism spread through the palaces. And, of course, here the Jews brag about their aims to overthrow all of the initial constitutions of the republics, the the parliamentary democracies, whatever you want to call them, of Christendom. And we don't have time to wade through the text of every European republic or every European, the constitution behind every European democracy to illustrate the faults in each document. It's very clear in our experience with the American Constitution that the language of the Founding Fathers themselves gave the Jews the ammunition they needed to assault the posterity of the Founders for whom the Constitution was meant. And within 80 years, it was entirely corrupted by the end of the American War of Northern Aggression. It certainly wasn't a civil war. Where the kings and the princes of Europe did not voluntarily cede a sufficient portion of their power in the name of liberalism, which we had seen explained in the earlier portions of the Protocols, specifically early in Protocol 1, violence was incited in order to overthrow them. After the time of Napoleon, there was a revolution in France against King Charles X in 1830, and a Belgian revolution to gain its independence from the Netherlands that same year. There were uprisings in Poland and Wales in 1831, and failed Republican revolutions in Canada, of all places. I didn't think the Canadians revolted against anything. I'm kidding. In, in 1837 and 1838. Then in 1848, there were revolutions in France and throughout Italy, Germany, Denmark, Hungary, Wallachia, Moldavia, and again in Ireland. In 1851, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, as French president, dissolved the parliament and eventually declared himself emperor. He ruled as Napoleon III until 1870. In 1854, there was a revolution in Spain. In 1859, an Italian war against French rule. A war between Austria and Prussia in 1866. The Prince of Romania was forced to abdicate in 1866 after forming a liberal government modeled after that of Napoleon III of France. And there was another Irish rebellion against the British in 1867, the deposition of Isabella II in Spain in 1868, and finally the Franco-Prussian War beginning in 1870. The German states uniting under Prussia were ruled by a liberal government under the Freemasons, King Wilhelm I and Otto von Bismarck. However, the eventual result was the First World War, which was actually instigated by the Rothschilds and fought for commercial purposes, even though Nesta Webster didn't see it that way.
A little further below we shall cite Nesta Webster at length in regard to the destruction of feudalism and the introduction of capitalism. It was the revolutions of 1848 which had done the most to bring down feudalism for good across Europe and introduce the so-called Age of Liberty, in which the European states would be ruled by parliamentary governments. By that time, England had already had such a government for 200 years, when in 1649 Charles I was dethroned and beheaded by the victorious Oliver Cromwell who was financed by the Jews of Holland. To paraphrase Clifton Emmeheiser, when the heads begin to roll, you know that the satanic Jews had prevailed. And before we approach that part of this protocol where we will cite Nesta Webster, we must say that here is one area where she disappoints us. With all of her good intentions, she was rather blinded by her Anglophile attitude, probably out of love for her own country. And she went so far as to say, in chapter 10 of World Revolution, that although the war on the part of Germany was one of pure aggression, and on the part of England one of urgent national defense, I I mean, I didn't see the Kaiser's ships sailing the Channel to invade Britain, the whole German Social Democratic Party in the body went over to the German War Party, whilst all the independent socialist organizations in this country, the Labour Party, the British Socialist Party, and the Socialist Labour Party, opposed England's participation in the war. So Webster also seems to have lumped all forms of socialism together and acted as if Marxism was typical of them all, which we will also comment on later. Here we will see an assessment by the authors of the Protocols, which is not based on a corrupt supposition, but on a condition which the Jews themselves had helped manage to create, where in the next sentences, Protocol number 3 continues, and the authors say that, unable to reach the hearts of their people, the rulers cannot unite with them to gain strength against the usurpers of power. The visible power of royalty and the blind power of the masses, separated by us, have both lost significance, for separated they are as helpless as the blind man without a stick. In earlier presentations of this series of the Protocols of Satan, we had discussed at great length how the first newspapers were printed, printed public notices that were established and financed by the ruling classes of any particular community for the benefit of the common people, so that they would be informed as to whatever circumstances may affect the community. By these means, the rulers could indeed reach the hearts of the people, and in this manner, the original press did indeed function as a fort estate. However, in time the public press was replaced by for-profit enterprises and the Jews who had the power of money which was not available to the vast majority of the common people quickly came to rule that enterprise. In short time, the press became a fifth column rather than a fourth estate.
By the mid-19th century, the European press was almost completely in the hands of the Jews, which was admitted even in general publications, as we had seen, I believe in part 12 of this series, even in general publications such as the 1901 edition of Chambers' Encyclopedia. We read from Chambers' Encyclopedia, from the 1901 edition, volume 6, that another extraordinary and well-authenticated fact is that the European press, no less than European finance, is under Jewish control. So with the press, which was once a province of the nobles, moved to entirely Jewish hands, it is no wonder that the nobles could not reach the hearts of the people which were firmly in the pockets of the Jews themselves, and still are to this day. So the Jews alone stood between the power of royalty and the blind power of the masses, and they knew it. Continuing with protocol number three, to induce the lovers of authority to abuse their power, we have placed all the forces in opposition to each other, having developed their liberal tendencies towards independence. We have excited different forms of initiative in that direction. We have armed all the parties. We have made authority the target of all ambitions. We have opened the arenas in different states where revolts are now occurring and disorders and bankruptcy will shortly appear everywhere. Governments having to endlessly borrow money in order to pay the debts for the maintenance of large police forces and large militaries. The revolutions of 1848 never rested until the resulting unification of German states under the Freemason, Otto von Bismarck, in the 1860s, who is credited with having engineered the wars which achieved that unification, therefore revealing for us those whom the Jews chose to induce lovers of authority to abuse their power. And then also the Italian states under Garibaldi. Garibaldi was also a Freemason. And by 1844 he was elected the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Italy. These and other revolutions of the period ended the rule of hereditary monarchy, denied the rights and privileges of the landholding nobility, and heralded the rule of the bourgeois the newly wealthy class of capitalists, many of whom happened to be recently liberated Jews. During this period, there was another revolution, the War of Northern Aggression, called the American Civil War, which would popularize the ideals of the French Revolution in America to an even greater extent than the American Revolution had achieved by extending their declarations to the non-white races. 
When Nesta Webster wrote her book, wrote her book World Revolution, The Plot Against Civilization, we cannot imagine that she had time to thoroughly study and evaluate the protocols. The first publications of the protocols in English appeared in 1920 or early 1921, and World Revolution was published that same year. So she mentions the protocols only in the last chapters of her book, and seems not to consider them in any of the earlier chapters. However, her many conclusions concerning the Illuminati and the other secret societies, Freemasonry, at least on the continent, the revolutions of Europe, and the fall of feudalism and the rise of capitalism, stand the test of time as a witness against the Jews and all those who have aided them. Independently, the witness being independent from the, photo, from the protocols. Sadly, Webster did not seem to realize the Jewish hand behind those same things in England. She seemed to be totally oblivious to it. Those same things in England which happened 200 years earlier and she often wrote as if England remained unsullied. She distinguished English Freemasonry from that of the continent, but was perhaps blind to the fact that England, already having long been subverted by liberalism, the Jews there did not need the same type of Freemasonry which had acted on the continent. Nesta Webster's fault in that area was her own blind patriotism. But in spite of that, her work concerning the subversive politics on the continent was nonetheless excellent. So in relation to this portion of the protocols, here we shall read from page 90 of Webster's book, World Revolution, in the chapter titled, The Growth of Socialism. Here, among other things, Webster describes the goals of Illuminism to overthrow the status quo of church and nobility, the active role in which the Jews had played in Illuminism, the role of Freemasonry as an agent of those goals. There, in respect to Freemasonry, it is also said that Piccolo Tigre who is a the noted founder and prominent member of the Hot Venta, a, a secret society layered above Freemasonry. Piccolo Tigre received the protection of the Masonic lodges everywhere. Although the greater number of the men who composed them were held by the Hot Vente in supreme contempt. Beyond the Masons, and unknown to them, writes Monsignor Dillon, though formed generally from them, lay the deadly secret conclave, which nevertheless used and directed them for the ruin of the world and of their own selves. It was thus, by systematic demoralization that the leaders of the Hot Vente, like the Illuminati, hoped to establish their ascendancy over the peoples of Europe, 
But in order to understand the manner in which they set out to accomplish this purpose, we must now examine the ground on which they had to work. And that will help set the basis for our destruction. We spoke about the hot venta, H-A-U-T-E-V-E-N-T-E, at great length in early segments of these discussions on the protocols and the series on the Jews in Europe that we had done in the interim. From this point on, Nesta Webster goes on to describe the state of the peasant in the aftermath of the fall of feudalism in the revolutions that Freemasonry along with press control and other means employed by the Jews had conducted so we shall read the portion under the subtitle The Industrial Revolution which begins on page 90 of her book and we have the book at Christogenia, and we will link it to this podcast. It is of the utmost importance to realize that the people at this period were suffering from very real grievances. These grievances weighed less, however, on the agricultural than on the industrial workers, whose conditions of life were often terrible. This fact no one has ever attempted to deny and we need not have recourse to the writings of socialists to gain an idea of the slavery endured by men, women, and children in the mines and factories of Europe during the years following on the Napoleonic Wars. For we shall find the whole case stated with more accuracy and far greater eloquence in the letters of Lord Shaftesbury, whose whole life was devoted to the cause of the poor and oppressed. And Webster here is astoundingly silent concerning the Rothschild sweatshops in London. What reason, what was the reason, she asks, for this aggravation of the workers' lot? Partly the speeding up of industry brought about by the introduction of machinery. Partly in England, the rapidly increasing population and during this century the nations of Europe experienced a 50 to 100 percent population growth. But in France to a large extent, in spite of the wars, right? Any immigration to America. But in France to a large extent the situation must be directly attributed to the revolution. We have already seen how the destruction of trade unions and increase in the days of labor by the abolition of national holidays, which were Roman Catholic holidays, had added to the workers' burden. But a further effect of the great upheaval had been the transference of power from the aristocracy to the bourgeois, with disastrous consequences to the people. In a word, the destruction of feudalism had inaugurated the reign of commercialism. This is admitted by no less than authority than Marx himself. And here is one of our biggest disappointments in Nesta Webster. While she, what she says about capitalism and the results of the end of feudalism is excellent, she upholds Marx as the supreme authority for socialism. She equates Marx with socialism as if Marx was actually advancing socialism. 
But organic socialism is nothing like the socialism of Marx. <clears throat> In a proper socialistic society, those who actually work and produce goods are also the capital holders. And the harder or better one works, the more capital one may hold. But with Marx, the state alone held all capital. All workers owned an imaginary equal share of what was nothing in reality. And that is not socialism at all. We do not understand why Webster seemed not to distinguish Marxism from real organic socialism. Webster continues, The bourgeois has played in history a most revolutionary part. The bourgeois, whenever it has conquered power, has destroyed all feudal, patriarchal, and idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder all the many-colored feudal bonds which united men to their natural superiors and has left no tie twixt man and man but naked self-interest and callous cash payment. It has drowned religious ecstasy, chivalrous enthusiasm, and middle-class sentimentality in the ice-cold water of calculation. It has transformed personal wealth into mere exchange value and substituted for countless dearly bought chartered freedoms the one and only unconscionable freedom of trade, of free trade. It has, in one word, replaced an exploitation veiled by religious and political illusions by exploitation open, unashamed, direct, and brutal. And here Nesta Webster was citing the Manifesto of the Communist Party by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. So this last paragraph concerning religious and political illusions aren't necessarily her own sentiments. But it is... Marx's assessment, Marx's assessment of the bourgeois. And it is right, to a great extent, it is the result of Jewish capitalism in our society today. There should be no doubt. But it is not entirely correct. Webster says, thus in the opinion of the leading prophet, which we would disagree with, but she calls him the leading prophet of modern socialist thought, it was the destruction of feudalism that led to the endowment of the proletariat. Exaggerated as this indictment of the bourgeois may be, there is a certain degree of truth in Marx's theory. There certainly is. The class that lives on inherited wealth is always the barrier to the exploitation of the workers. And that's absolutely true. It's the responsibility of the nobles to shield their lesser kinsmen from the Jew. To the noble who paid 500 louis for his carros, his coach or carriage, or the duchess who never asked the price of her brocaded gown. 
Whereas the, was, where was the advantage of underpaying the workman or the dressmaker? Sweating results largely from the attempt to bring commodities within the reach of a class that cannot or will not pay a price allowing a fair rate of remuneration to the worker. After the revolution, when aristocracy, with its careless expenditure and its traditional instincts of benevolence, had taken refuge in garrets, these were the classes that supported industry, and thus and it is thus against the newly rich, or the bourgeois, that we find the bitterest complaints of the people directed. In other words, the effort to sell luxuries to everyone makes slaves of everyone when everyone comes to desire such luxuries. Jewish advertising and global Jewish trade were exalted in the promise of an ability to deliver luxuries to the entire world, thereby enslaving the entire world. In this sense, commodities are even luxuries, because only those living in luxury may enjoy an endless supply of their common needs with little of their own labor used to procure them. At the same time, continuing with Webster, at the same time, amongst the bourgeois had arisen a new influence that Marx is careful not to indicate but about which the socialist Melon is more explicit. And we must interrupt already. Benoit Melon was a French socialist, writer and politician who lived from 1841 to 1893. He left the seminary after being inspired by the writings of the French anarchist, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, a leading figure of the 1848 revolution in France, who turned out to be an inept administrator of his own concepts. Proudhon is credited with the saying that property is theft, and is said to have influenced Karl Marx. But on the other hand, Proudhon was considered, he also considered himself a socialist, and he was opposed to state ownership of capital goods in favor of ownership by workers themselves in associations. Not private ownership, but by workers in associations. That's syndicalism. This is closer to what we would consider to be organic socialism, which we see as being along the lines of national socialism as as it is explained in Mein Kampf, but it is not quite that type of organic socialism. Continuing with Webster and her citation of Benoit Melon, he wrote that feudalism signifies privilege granted in return for certain duties agreed upon. That is right, it is a system of honor. Judaized plutocracy, and that's his word, Judaized plutocracy, meaning the bourgeois, 
recognizes no duty. It has only one object, to appropriate the largest possible part of the work of others and of the social accumulation in order to use and abuse it selfishly. That is its great moral indignity and the signal for its approaching fall in the name of public welfare and of the interests of humanity. And Benoit Melon would be shocked to see how far the Jews have carried this ball. This has been the economic system that all of Christendom has been enthralled in since the downfall of the nobility in the various revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. This is the result of liberty. Continuing with Webster, (coughs) this is where we find that she excels. And she says, we shall find the same opinion expressed later by the anarchist Bakunin. And we won't get quite so far as her citations of Mikhail Bakunin this evening. She goes on to say that the Jew was of course not alone in exploiting the workers, but the spirit of the Jew permeating commerce in every country, in France, in Germany, above all in America, and of course she left out England, I don't know how, undoubtedly contributed to the industrial oppression against which Marx invades. Under the monarchy, the Jews had been held in check by laws limiting their activities, but the edicts passed at the beginning of the revolution, decreeing their complete emancipation, had removed all restraints to their rapacity. And that they did. The Jews were off the chain, and the wolves were devouring the sheep. I don't have much documentation, but a story from my own family. As a youth, my grandmother told me how her own mother, whom I knew as a child, who was born in 1900, worked in the knitting mills of New England for 10 hours a day at the age of 9. Her own father, my great-great-grandfather, was a poor tenant farmer in the area of Framingham, Massachusetts. And that is a part of what commonly poor families of the time had to do to survive. In the relative luxury of modern times, we tend to forget even the plight of our recent ancestors. The following short essay on child labor is from David Cody, an associate professor of English at Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York. And he says that the shameful practice of child labor should have played an important role in the Industrial Revolution from its outset should not be wondered at. The displaced working classes from the 17th century on displaced by the fall of feudalism. He doesn't get into that from the 17th century on, took it for granted that a family would not be able to support itself if the children were not employed. In Defoe's day, he thought it admirable that in the vicinity of Halifax, scarcely anybody above the age of four was idle. 
The children of the poor were forced by economic conditions to work, as Dickens, with his family in debtor's prison, worked at age 12 in the blacking factory. In 1840, perhaps only 20% of the children of London had any schooling, a number which had risen by 1860, when perhaps half of the children, between 5 and 15, were in some sort of school, if only a day school, of the sort in which Dickens's Pip character finds himself in great expectations, or a Sunday school. The others were working. Many of the more fortunate found employment as apprentices to respectable trades. In the building trade, workers put in 64 hours a week in summer and 52 in winter. Or as general servants, there were over 120,000 domestic servants in London alone at the mid-century, who worked 80 hours a week for one halfpence per hour. 40 cents a week. But many more were not so lucky. Most prostitutes, and there were thousands in London alone, were between 15 and 22 years of age. Something tells us that most of their employers were Jews, but we digress. Continuing with the last paragraph of Cody's short essay, Many children worked 16 hours a day under atrocious conditions, as their elders did. Ineffective parliamentary acts to regulate the work of workhouse children in factories and cotton mills to 12 hours per day had been passed as early as 1802 and 1819. After radical agitation, notably in 1831, when short-time committees organized largely by evangelicals began to demand a 10-hour day A royal commission established by the Whig government recommended in 1833 that children aged 11 to 18 be permitted to work a maximum of 12 hours per day. Children 9 to 11 were allowed to work 8-hour days, and children under 9 were no longer permitted to work at all. Children as young as 3 had been put to work previously. This act applied only to the textile industry, where children were put to work at the age of five, and not to a host of other industries and occupations, iron and coal mines, where children, again both boys and girls, began work at age five, and generally died before they were twenty-five. Gas work, shipyards, construction, match factories, nail factories, and the business of chimney sweeping, for example which Blake would use as an emblem of the destruction of the innocent, where the exploitation of child labor was more extensive, was to be enforced in all of England by a total of four inspectors. Probably all Jews. I'm kidding. After further radical agitation, another act in 1847 limited both adults and children to ten hours of work daily. The children of medieval peasants fared much better than the children of 19th century commoners. As soon as the Jews were free to do what they wanted with their ill-gained money, they set to enslaving the goyim, who were dispossessed of the protection of the nobles. This was white privilege in the age of liberty. Continuing with Webster and her description 
of the result of the end of feudalism. In some regards, she is actually very cautious in her assessment of the role of the Jews. And she says that by the Jewish race, 1789 is therefore hailed as the year of deliverance. Without going so far as Monsieur Drumont, in saying that the revolution delivered the people from the aristocrats in order to hand them over to the Jews, which is how we would assess the situation, it cannot be denied that the power of the Jews over the people was immensely increased by the overthrow of the monarchy and aristocracy. Whether they deliberately contributed to this end, it is impossible to say. We have to ask the old Latin adage, qui bono. But their influence was suspected by contemporaries, as may be seen in the following passage from Prudhomme, an ardent democrat and in no way to be accused of anti-Semitism. Quoting Prudhomme, she says that the French Revolution did a great deal of good to the Jews. It entirely proscribed that antiquated prejudice which caused the remains of this ancient people to be regarded as a race of degraded men below all others. The Jews in France for a long time paid no longer at the barriers as under the reign of St. Louis. The same dues that were exacted from the cloven-footed, in other words, under the reign of St. Louis, he was charging the Jews passage just like he would charge an oxen or a cow or a goat. That's fitting, a goat. But every year each Jewish family was taxed 40 livres for the right of habitation or protection and tolerance. This due was suppressed on the 20th of July, 1790. The Jews were, so to speak, naturalized French and took the rank of citizens. What did they do to show their gratitude? What they did before? They have not changed. They have not mended their ways. They contributed not a little to the fall of Assignats, if I'm saying that right. These Assignats were the paper money issued by the French National Assembly during the Revolution through to 1796. And continuing, he says, The disorder of our finances was a Peruvian mine for them. They have not abated their infamous traffic. That's a reference to a South American gold mine. They have not abated their infamous traffic on the contrary, civil liberty has only availed them to extend their stock-jobbing speculations. Public misery became a rich patrimony to them. The Jews took impetus. The government had need of them, and God knows how dearly they have made the Republic pay the resources that it demanded of them. What mysteries of iniquity would be revealed if the Jews, like the mole, did not make a point of working in the dark. In a word, and to say all, the Jews have never been more Jews than since we tried to make make of them men and citizens. 
Here Nestor Webster is citing The Crimes of the Revolution, Volume 3, page 44, which we'll discuss shortly. Then she says that Burke relates that the Jews made large profits out of the plunder of the churches, and that he is told the very sons of such Jew jobbers have been made bishops, persons not to be suspected of any Christian superstition. In other words, these Jews are being made bishops because they don't believe in Jesus. She is citing reflections on the French Revolution. And she remarks that this may explain the apostasy of certain prelates on the 8th of November, 1793. Now, that's the end of her note. I do not know the significance of this date, except to say that Robespierre was in the midst of purging the grandest opposition, and the rather innocent Madame Roland was sent to the guillotine on that date, where she is said to have proclaimed, O liberty, what crimes are committed in thy name? The Prudhomme that she is quoting here, born in 1752 and surviving until 1830, Louis-Marie Prudhomme was a French journalist and historian who published a newspaper called Revolutions of Paris during the French Revolution. He is said to have written a two-volume work that listed all of the people he had known who were executed during the Reign of Terror. He wrote a work published in six volumes in 1797 titled, in the English translation, The General and Impartial History of the Errors, Faults, and Crimes Committed During the French Revolution, which is said to have been seized by police, and another two-volume work in 1825 called Europe tormented by the French Revolution, shaken by 18 murderous years. I'm sorry, 18 years of murderous walks by Napoleon Bonaparte. Being an eyewitness to the French Revolution, and over 30 years of its aftermath, his rather candid statement that, in a word, and to say all, the Jews have never been more Jews than since we tried to make of them men and citizens, bears all the more significance. Nesta Webster continues. But it was the peasants who became the chief sufferers from the domination of the Jews. Under the old regime, the feudal dues had proved oppressive, but in many instances, the seigneurs, or the feudal lords, whether they be dukes or counts, were the benefactors and protectors of their vassals. The Jewish usurers, on whom the peasant proprietors now depended to carry on if crops failed, or weather proved unpropitious, showed no indulgence. And dukes and counts, referring to the feudal lords is my own interpolation. It could be barons or something else. As soon as he, the peasant, writes Daniel Stern, who is not a Jew, has entered into commercial relations with this Rousset race, meaning this crafty or sly race, as soon as he has put his name at the foot of a paper, 
which he has read and reread without perceiving the hidden clause that does for him, the peasant, in spite of all his finesse, will never succeed in recovering his liberty. Henceforth his activity, his intelligence, the benefits of providence, providence who sends him rich harvests, will profit him nothing but only his new master. In other words, as soon as the peasant signs his name to a sheet recording a loan, he'll never profit from his own labors again, only the Jew will. And Daniel Stern goes on to say, the exorbitant interest on a very small capital will absorb his time and his labors. Every day he will see the comfort of his family diminish and his difficulties increase. As the fatal day approaches when the debt falls due, the somber face of his creditor warns him that he can expect no respite. The Jew's not giving him a break. He must make up his mind. He must go further along the road of perdition. Borrow again. Always borrow. Until ruin has been brought about. And fields, meadows, and woods. House, flocks, and home. Have all passed from his industrious hands. Into the rapacious ones of the usurer. And a typical peasant in many European countries after the revolutions of Europe and the privatization of the land had as many as 30 acres. Here Webster cited the revolution of 1848 by Daniel Stern. With a parenthetical remark Webster explains that Daniel Stern was the pen name for Marie Deagoul. Deagou, I'm probably destroying that, I'm sorry. It's D apostrophe A G O U L T. Deagoul. The wife of a French count and army colonel in the time of Napoleon III. Her History of the Revolution of 1848 was published from 1850 through 1853 in three volumes. Unfortunately, she was also a feminist who was divorced by her husband as she was caught in an affair with the soon-to-be-famous composer Franz Liszt. Continuing with Nesta Webster, In a word, the peasant inherited from the aristocrat. He was disinherited by the usurer. Here is the true history of the disinherited, not in France alone, but in Russia, in Austria, in Poland, everywhere that the worker lives by tilling his own soil. The abolition of feudalism has led to the domination of the moneylender, and the moneylender in most cases is a Jew. In other words, the land of the nobles fell to the peasants that worked it, and the Jew was right there to loan the peasants some, some cash. <laughs> some worthless cash. There, were, there weren't even any Walmarts back then or John Deere tractors. Here Webster has a note concerning Russia at this time, where she wrote that, asking her, her readers to see the account given on his journey through the white Russia in 1816 by the Grand Duke Nicholas, who, while admitting the support given to the imperial authority by the Jews, remarks 
The gen- and this is a hundred years before the Bolshevik Revolution. The general ruination of the peasantry of these provinces is attributable to the Jews, who are second in import to the landowners only. By their industries they exploit to the utmost the unfortunate population. They are everything here. Merchants, contractors, pothouse keepers, millers, carriers, artisans. And they are so clever in squeezing and cheating the common people that they advance money on the unsown bread and discount the harvest before the fields are sown, which is sort of the way that the modern commodities markets operate. They are regular leeches who suck up everything and completely exhaust this province. And here in her note, saying this, Webster is citing Braley Hodgett's book, The Court of Russia in the 19th Century. Continuing with Webster, where she speaks of the peasant having become dominated by the Jewish moneylenders. It's Exasperated by this tyranny, the peasants from time to time have given way to violence and turned on their oppressors. Is it altogether surprising? When in the 14th century the peasants rose against the nobles, the blame, we are told, must rest solely with the nobles. Yet why is peasant fury, when it took the form of a jacquerie to be condoned, a jacquerie being a reference to a rebellion against the nobles, and when it takes the form of a pogrom to be remorselessly condemned. Surely in one case, as much as the other, the plea of uncontrollable exasperation may be just with justice put forward. A jacquerie was a communal uprising or revolt against the local feudal lords, and of course a pogrom was a revolt against oppressive Jewish usurers, and of course a Jewish-controlled press, just like we see today in mainstream media all the time, the jacquerie would be condemned, or, or I'm sorry, the jacquerie would be encouraged and the pogrom would be condemned. Today the lines are drawn a little differently. An uprising by Negroes is encouraged, and an uprising by white Christians would definitely be condemned. The National Guard would be moved in. Webster continues, The industrial worker, as well as the peasant, found the Jew an exacting taskmaster. It was not only the introduction of machinery that, at the beginning of the 19th century, brought about the speeding up of industry, but the spirit of the new commercialism, which succeeded to the leisurely methods of the old regime. As Monsieur Drumont has expressed it, if the workers paused for breath, the cry went up from the statisticians, what are we coming to? England manufactured 375 million trouser buttons last year, and we have only produced 374 million. This driving force behind the worker, this spirit of cutthroat competition, was largely attributable to the Jew. At any rate, whether we regard the capitalistic system as an evil or not, we cannot deny that the Jews were mainly responsible for it. In order to appreciate the thorough insincerity of Marx with regard to this question, it is only necessary to glance through his book, Das Kapital, and then the work of 
Werner Sombart on the Jews in modern capitalism. The Jew, as Sombart remarks, embodied modern capitalism. Citing the Jews in modern capitalism, page 50. And he goes on to describe, step by step, the building up by Jewish hands of the system which superseded the old regime of amicable trading and peaceful industry. He shows the Jew as the inventor of advertising, as the employer of cheap labor, as the principal participant in the stock jobbing or agiotage that prevailed at the end of the first French Revolution and later in a series we hope to present the words of Adolf Hitler in this very respect who understood that the Jews through the international stock markets when they were allowed to function in a particular country that nation was actually forfeiting its sovereignty just by having the Jews allowed to trade stocks internationally and Hitler understood that but few people do she goes on to explain, citing Werner Sombart. But it is above all as the usurer that the Jew has achieved power. Modern capitalism, says Sombart, is the child of money lending, and the Jew, as we have seen, is the money lender par excellence, and we must say that a vocation. As a vocation, money lending was generally barred to Christians for nearly all of 16 centuries, up to the time of the French Revolution. The great fortune of the Rothschilds was built up on this basis. The principal loan floaters of the world, they were later the first railway kings. The period of 1820 onwards became, as Sombart calls it, the age of the Rothschilds, so that by the middle of the century it was a common dictum. There is only one power in Europe, and that is Rothschild. That's not England, that's Europe. Now, how is it conceivable that a man who set out honestly to denounce capitalism, speaking about Marx, should have avoided all the reference to its principal authors? Yet even in the section of his book dealing with the origins of industrial capitalism, where Marx refers to the great financiers, the stock jobbing and speculation in shares, and what he describes as the modern sovereignty of finance, he never once indicates the Jews as the leading financiers or the Rothschilds as the supercapitalists of the world. As well might one sit down to recount the history of wireless telegraphy without any reference to Signor Marconi. How are we to explain this astounding omission? Only by recognizing that Marx was not sincere in his denunciations of the capitalistic system and that he had other ends in view. And she concludes, I shall now return to this point later in connection with the career of Marx. And here Nesta Webster is correct. Marx was not sincere. But 
Neither was he a sincere socialist. He wasn't sincere about capitalism, and he wasn't sincere about socialism. Denying personal property rights, denying the right of a man to benefit from the fruit of his own labors, and concentrating wealth in the hands of the state is tantamount to putting it into the hands of the Jew, the same Jew who would benefit from capitalism. And we will see that in another context Webster agrees, but she should not have held up Marx as an authority on what is socialism. Rather, she should have realized that Marx was only one half of a dichotomy by which the Jews had strangled all of Europe because they themselves promoted Marx and Marxism as the authority of so on socialism so that most Europeans would either accept capitalism or make the false realization that the only alternative was Marxism. The Jews caught Europe in a dichotomy, just like they caught Europe in a dichotomy a few hundred years before that, with, with Calvinism and Arminianism and, and thousands of other dichotomies in various places in history, just like they catch Americans in all sorts of dichotomies today. And we accept these dichotomies and never look past them, never think outside the box, Republican or Democrat, Republican or Democrat, all the time. Capitalist or Marxist, capitalist or Marxist. Continuing with Webster. Such, then, was the condition of things at the beginning of the period known as the Industrial Revolution. The grievances of the workers were very real. The need for social reconstruction urgent. The gulf between poverty and riches greater than ever before. And the Democrat and the government of France had no schemes of reform to offer. If only a great man had then arisen to lead the people back to the paths of sanity and progress, to show them that in that fatal year of 1789, newborn democracy had taken the wrong turning and wandered into a pathless jungle, whence it could only emerge by retracing its footsteps and starting afresh led by the light of its own day, not by the will of the wisp of illuminized Freemasonry. And, and Webster was also to a degree infected with humanism, as we see here. But we may expect that for her time. She continues, Unhappily, at this new crisis, in the history of the working classes, there was no one to point the way, no one who had the insight and the courage to rise and declare. The great experiment of 1789 to 1794 has proved a failure. The principles on which it was founded have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. The goals it set before us have turned out to be mirages towards which we have marched too long with bleeding feet. The methods it employed were atrocious and must never be repeated. The men who led it were the enemies of the people and such as they shall never deceive us again. Well, that's that. this is all looking through the world in rose-colored glasses and far too altruistic. 
There is no hope for suffering humanity but to repudiate the revolution and all its works and to strike out a fresh path with new hopes, new aims, founded not on the dreams of visionaries or the schemes of demagogues, but on the true desires of the people. Now, we do not agree with the content of Nestor Webster's solution. However, we certainly can agree that liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy are experiments which were doomed to failure from their very conception. She concludes this section of her chapter, and she says... Instead of rallying the people by such a trumpet call as this, the men who now arose had nothing better to offer than the worn-out creed of their revolutionary predecessors. And they're still repeating this garbage. They're still repeating these same tired old mottos to this very day. And they're still getting away with it. She says that the doctrines that had proved fallacious, the visions that had turned out to be delusions, the battle cries that had led the people to disaster, were all to be again revived with the same assurance as if in the past they had been attended with triumphant success. And we still suffer this predicament today. And still our politicians follow the same patterns. And we will suffer with it until, as a people, we repent and turn our concern with for one another in the spirit of true Christian socialism and love for our own brethren. That's the only solution. Christ is the only solution. In another context, Webster set forth an excellent assessment of capitalism and Marxism. Here's where she did realize, but she didn't say it, that Marx was basically just part of a dichotomy. She still, in her earlier chapters, held him up as the authority on socialism when his socialism was not true. She wrote in her chapter of World Revolution, which is titled The Revolution of 1917, and she said the following. For the only form of communism which has ever been possible to carry out successfully is that practiced by religious communities. Monasteries and nunneries are, of course, communist, but the fact which makes this possible is that they are composed of people who have renounced all interest in earthly things and center all their thoughts and desires on the kingdom of heaven, and we would call them communal rather than communist to draw an important distinction in our own vernacular. Secular communism, she says, by its insistence on materialism, eliminates the only factor that makes the system feasible, which is belief in God and the hereafter. It is inconceivable that leading communists should be unaware of this fundamental error, their teaching, or the failure that has attended every attempt to put into practice in the past, above all, its colossal failure in Russia. And she's deeming it a failure after only four years of Lenin and Trotsky. If then, communism or state socialism has been proved impracticable, 
If, moreover, it is a system that no one who understands it can possibly want, who is to profit by establishing it? Sorrell answered the question long ago, and she's quoting Georges or Georges Sorrell. A few professors who imagine they invented socialism, and a few Dreyfusard financiers. That question is, who would profit by the establishment of state communism? A few professors who imagined they invented socialism, she's calling state Marxism socialism, and a few Dreyfusard financiers. And she says, in other words, the intellectuals who cherish the hope of being given official posts in the socialist state, which will give them an advantage over their fellow men, and a few Jewish financiers. Werner Sombart, summing up the system of the later, says that their aim was to seize upon all commerce and all production. They had an overpowering desire to expand it in every direction. The system of free trade was all part of this plan and can be traced back as far as Anacarsis Clutes, who was doubtless considering the interests of his friends, the Jews, when in his universal republic he advocated all the peoples forming one nation, farming only one trade, all interests forming only one interest. It is easy to see that state socialism may merely prelude, be the prelude to this scheme. And here, Monsieur Sorel and Monsieur Copin Albancelli are curiously in accord. And we will discuss these two gentlemen. Monsieur Sorel is the French philosopher and syndicalist theorist. George Sorel. This and, and syndicalism is very close to Marxism, just not entirely there. Paul Copin Albincelli was a French journalist, a nationalist, and a former Freemason who became an early so-called conspiracy author, founding so-called anti-Semitic and anti-Masonic newspapers in France, Nesta Webster frequently cited publications with which he was associated. Of course, the point Webster is making is that the two would not naturally find agreement unless the conspiracy actually exists. So her point is an entirely valid one. Continuing with Webster, where she cites Copen Albancelli, one formula, he wrote in 1909, sums up the whole collectivist propaganda. All for the state. All for the state. The people imagine this, that this means all for all, and they march forward, intoxicated with hope, towards the conquest of this fallacious idea, not dreaming that the state being henceforth in the hands of the Jews, all for the state will be all for the Jews. The dictatorship imposed by the Jewish race will be a financial, industrial, and commercial dictatorship. That's in 1909. Copen Albancelli was certainly a man of 
clear vision. The work of his which Noah Webster cited here is titled The Jewish Conjuration Against the Christian World. Copan Albanicelli wrote these words some years before the Bolshevik Revolution and in relation to Russia. His words have been proven by history. When the Soviet Union dissolved, the Jews ended up with everything. Continuing, Webster responds, What could better describe the government of Russia today? The plan of wresting all capital out of private hands and placing it in the hands of the state, as under communism, or in the hands of industrial syndicates as under syndicalism, may well be the prelude to state capitalism or to gigantic trusts controlled by international financiers. In this case, the so-called war on capitalism is simply a war in favor of capitalism, of ruining all small holders of wealth or property in order to enrich a ring of multimillionaires. That's the dichotomy of Marxism and capitalism. That's what we've been caught in for all these cent- for for all these last fourteen, fifteen decades. She says a passage in Mr. Wells's articles on Russia lends color to this theory. Big business is by no means antipathetic to communism. The larger big business grows, the more it approximates to collectivism. It is the upper road of the few instead of the lower road of the masses to collectivism. And she's citing an article which appeared in the Sunday Express, November 28, 1920. Conversely, she says, conversely then, May not communism be the lower road which the masses are being invited to follow, leading to big business, that is to say, to supercapitalism. Once embarked on this road, there can be no turning back. The present capitalist system, that is to say, the system that aims at the distribution of capital amongst as large a number of hands as possible, and we will comment on that in a moment. Having been destroyed by the workers' own folly in favor of concentration of capital in the hands of the state, they will be obliged to work or starve. Their new masters will have them completely at their mercy. And before we proceed, we must state that I don't see how Nesta Webster believed that the present capitalist system aims at the distribution of capital amongst as large a number of hands as possible. I don't see that because it is inevitable when you allow a usurer into your community that eventually the usurer ends up with all the property, everything, especially in a system where money is only published, only created by the usurer, and every unit of currency which is created immediately demands more back than what's been created. So all of the money in circulation cannot pay the debt. The inevitable result is that the usurer 
owns everything in the end, and that capitalism leads to the consolidation of wealth in the hands of a few. So perhaps Nesta Webster didn't quite think that one out. But she continues, and she does very well in other areas. It will be urged, but the workers will never stand this. They will rise against their tyrants and overthrow them. What government of this kind could maintain itself in power? But this is where the role of the German armies comes in. It is quite true, and remember she's writing in 1920, it is quite true that a group of international financiers could not of its own strength maintain itself in power against an enraged industrial proletariat. But if we imagine this financial power backed by a superb military system, in a word, we picture an alliance between Prussian militarism and international finance. The plan no longer appears impracticable. It is this alliance that today menaces civilization, and it is an alliance of long standing, as we have seen in the earlier chapters of this book. The present campaign of anti-Semitism raging in Germany is largely a strategic maneuver with the object of reinstating Germany in the eyes of the world and throwing all the blame for both the war and the revolution on the Jews. Germany will not relinquish her Jews, as Hitler is not yet in power, right? As long as they can help her towards the attainment of her dream of world power. Nor will the international Jew forsake Germany as long as by her military strength she remains the horse to back. Webster could not have seen the entire picture. But it is evident that according to the desire of the Rothschilds, and after the issue of the Balfour Declaration, the Jews entirely forsook Germany for greener pastures in England and the United States. And Nesta Webster has just described rather perfectly the current function of the international capital, the United States and its military in our modern world, which has been the prevalent power ever since the end of the First World War. But the description fits any world empire in history, and it is described in our scripture. So long as the people worship the beast and reverence the dragon which gives it power, they will be slaves to the eternal Jew. For a long time, Christianity kept our race relatively free of that slavery. And now, in the desire for unheard of liberty, we have become twice the children of hell. The Midgard Serpent has bound all of Christendom in its grasp, and we can only await the day that it releases its tail, precipitating the fall of Babylon. I bet the analogy offends some pagans and some self-righteous Christians as well, but it's nonetheless true. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Are created by design That no matter what they tell you There's
Since our eyes were first opened and our ears began to hear, they've been hurting us like cattle through our fantasies and fears. They move us through illusion and confusion of the mind, and by changing subtle meanings to the words between the lines. It's the news behind the news and the methods you can use. It's a looping and the plan they all rely on. Learn 